I don't know if you all know this or not, but I used to work in a recording studio back in my former life. Um, it was awesome. I, I worked 80 to 100 hours a week. That part wasn't awesome. Um, but it was really cool getting to work with a lot of people that had made records kind of back in some of the glory days of rock and roll. Because the guy that owned our studio, he was, you know, he'd been like one of the Nashville A-team you know, guys, studio musicians in the 60s and 70s. He'd played on like 12 Elvis records and all this stuff. Anyway, one day I remember um, um, hearing about this guy who was coming... Uh, to, to work in our studio that day. And the studio manager said, hey, Kevin, you know who's coming in today? And I said, no, who? He goes, Larry Nectal. I thought, yeah, um, that's something I should know. Who, who's this guy, Larry Nectal? And I remember, um, you know, I remember the studio manager saying, Larry Nectal, he played piano on Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's all they said. And it was like, oh. Great, Larry Nectel's coming. That's awesome. A few years ago, I was at the Nashville Film Festival, and there was a documentary about a group of musicians who really were the guys that, and actually Carol Kay, so it wasn't all guys, actually, she played bass on a lot of the, these records, um, who really made like most of the big pop records that you know from the 60s and the 70s. A, a group of musicians that called themselves the Wrecking Crew. They were kind of the L.A. studio musicians. It was a great documentary, and I'm, I think they're getting close to releasing it on DVD where you'll be able to watch it. Um, anyway, they, they, at the National Film Festival, the cool thing was a lot of the guys who'd been in the film live here now. And so, it, you know, this was like kind of one of the world premieres of this documentary. And so they had a bunch of the musicians who had been profiled in the film stand up afterwards and take questions. And fascinating... Um, they asked everybody to kind of, you know, one at a time, what was your favorite track that you played on? Like, what session, what song stands out to you as really being, like, just the top of the, top of the heap of, of all, the, all the many multitudes of records? And, I mean, these guys, they played, you know, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. They played the Pink Panther theme with Henry Mancini. I mean, the range of stuff that these guys did was remarkable. And I remember they kind of went down the list and different people had their, their things. And then this one guy who was a piano player um, stood up and he said, well, for me, the greatest track that I remember from that era was one that I didn't play on. It was played on by a guy named Larry Nectal, Bridge Over Troubled Water. It was fascinating to me just to hear you know, so these people that are in the know talk about that performance. And the reason I tell you that story, I don't know if you've listened to that performance recently. It's an amazing, amazing performance. Larry has actually passed away now. First time I gave this message, um, only in Nashville, right? I gave this talk down at Christ Community Church down in Franklin, and a guy came up to me afterwards and said, you know, my buddy's working on a record with Larry Nectal right now, and I'm going to tell him he should listen to your sermon, um, which is cool. So I don't know if he ever did, but he's passed away now. But anyway... Like the cool, the, thing, the reason I'm, I'm telling you that story is I wonder what you think heaven will be like. What do you think will be in the heavenly city that God says he is bringing? The Bible, it's been well said, starts out, the story of the Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. And here tonight we're going to talk about the vision that we have in Isaiah chapter 60 of this heavenly city. This glorious city, Zion, city of our God. And it's a surprising vision for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is the kind of stuff that it says will be in the city. And I think that one of the things that it presses us to think about 
is the very greatest fruits of human creation finding a place in the heavenly city, even if they weren't made by Christian people. This is a surprising vision and a challenging vision because most Christians, when they think about the life that is to come, they think about heaven and what it's going to be like, they think of it as a disembodied sort of abstract experience where we're going to float around on clouds. And it's so far from the biblical picture about what is coming. And the reason this matters is because your vision of the future and what the future has in store for you has everything to do with the way you live in the present. What you think about the future has everything to do with the way you live in the present. If you think that someday you're going to be on stage in front of millions of people, it may actually induce you to practice. <laughs> right? But if you think there's no way in the world I'm ever going to, to sort of have those sort of opportunities, then it makes it harder to bother. And I could give you numerous and numerous examples. If you know that someday you're going to write prescriptions that could either save a life or kill somebody, well, you might study a little more seriously, right? But if you're just, you know, taking pharmacology just for the heck of it because it's fun, well, you're crazy, but you also are not going to approach it the same way. The future that's coming has everything to do with the way you live today. Now, most of us haven't reflected so consciously on that, but it's happening nonetheless. And I would argue that one of the reasons that the church is so weak and anemic and has so little effect in the culture in which we live is because we've got a screwed up notion about what's coming. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 60 and see if God can straighten us out a little bit. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. This is all a description of the city of God, heavenly city that's coming. Verse 6, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Keter's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you, and they will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple." Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion." Your gates will always stand open. 
They will never be shut day or night. So that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, to the pine, the fir, and the cypress together, to adorn the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place of my feet. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will, be, will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time I will do this swiftly. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to get our minds and our thoughts and our imaginations around this glorious vision, which is not just a vision, a hope, It's a promise. And we pray it's a promise that we would come to trust in, rely upon, and long for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of surprising things about this vision. Some of them are surprising because of the present context in which we live. Some of them are surprising because... Christians are so far away in many respects from understanding what the Bible says about the future. So many Christians have bought into sort of really bad ideas and theologies. Um, For instance, it was popular, uh, particularly in the last century, in the 20th century, often to talk about our approach to the culture. And Christians would say things like, well, you know, why bother working for justice and righteousness in our culture. It's like polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's going down anyway, so don't waste your time. Best to spend your time and energy saving souls. But you know, that's a huge departure from the way Christians have understood not only the future, but their role within the culture and the world that God has placed them in. And so, as we come to a passage like this, in some ways disconnected 
from the historic Christian understanding of the future, we find a number of surprises. Now, like I said, the first surprise to this vision that Isaiah has here in chapter 60, which if you've read other places in the Bible, you may recognize Revelation chapter 21, talking about the heavenly city that has come to down, is based in many ways upon Isaiah chapter 60. So some of these ideas you may be like, oh, I think I've heard about this idea that there'll be no moon or sun because the Lord will be the light in that city. Yeah, that all, a lot of these things are repeated in Revelation 21. But we're going to look tonight at the way it's talked about in Isaiah chapter 60. Understanding that, if you want to understand a little more about this vision, Isaiah, or Revelation 21 is also a great passage to be looking at. If you backed up a couple verses, and you don't need to unless you've got your Bible in front of you, I've put it on the outline. The context of chapter 59 makes this vision really extraordinary and somewhat shocking. God says this back in chapter 59, verses 14 and 15. Justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes its prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. So not only is the city, when Isaiah is writing, characterized by unrighteousness and oppression, but if you were to take a stand for righteousness, you would become a victim of this unrighteousness. The situation is bleak and dark. And not only that, the exile has come. There's a a reference to it, actually, in the passage that I read in chapter 60, where it talks about how I struck you in anger, but now in compassion I will redeem you. The striking in anger that's referred to here is God's people were sent out of the heavenly city, Jerusalem, were sent off into exile in a foreign land. But now God, in promising to restore them, is using this imagery of the city, and yet the city that is talked about here in Isaiah 60 is so much bigger than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is figuratively pointing us to something even greater that is to come, the city that is to come. As a matter of fact, you know, the book of Hebrews talks about sort of a fundamental characteristic of the people who believed in God in the Old Testament. All of them, the book of Hebrews says looked for a city that was to come. But they didn't have it yet. The idea is, if you were related to God, you understood that there was a city to come, that Jerusalem was just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Right? But the context right now, you couldn't possibly think that you were going to get there from here. Righteousness is nowhere to be seen. Sin and evil rule the day. So this this vision here is surprising because it seems that there's no possible way it could happen. So why, why can there be this kind of hope? How can you get from Isaiah 59, verse 14 and 15 to Isaiah 60? And the answer is Isaiah 59, verse 21. I put this verse on your outline as well, and it's fascinating. It says this, As for me... This is my covenant with them. The them refers to his people who will repent. He says, My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth. 
or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. And then the next verse, the very next verse, is the first one I read. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Now the English can't fully capture what is an important point in the Hebrew here. Because we don't have gender in, in uh, some of our words. In other words, you, is it masculine or feminine? In Hebrew, there's a masculine and a feminine form of the, of the word you. In Isaiah 59, the last verse, 21, the you there is singular and masculine. So God is saying something about, I will make a covenant with them, meaning all of his people. And then it shifts to masculine singular, you. And then in chapter 60, verse 1, it shifts again to feminine singular, you. So the you at the end of verse 21 is not the same you as chapter 60, verse 1. What does this mean? The feminine singular is the regular way that God refers to the city of God, Zion. It's always referred to as a feminine word. But you there is referring to the Son of God, the one who is the covenant. In other words, what God is saying is, even though the context is evil and righteousness is nowhere to be seen, then he lets us in on a conversation that God the Father is having with God the Son. I will put the word in your mouth and the spirit in you, and it will not depart. In other words, God is promising, in spite of the look of things, that I will bring revival that will come through my word, through my servant, and through my spirit, which will not be vanquished. And therefore... This promise that's spelled out in chapter 60 is our future. It's our future because God has promised it and God has sent Jesus to secure it. God promises revival produced by the Word and the Spirit that will affect not just the church, but the whole cosmos. The vision here, understand, is not the inevitable progress of human nature getting better and better. The vision is, things are hopeless, but because of the covenant, and because of God's commitment to the covenant and to send His Son, there is a hope for the people of God. And because there's a hope for the people of God, there's a hope for all of God's creation. Now that gets us to the second surprise about this vision. It's surprising to a lot of Christians that there's stuff in the heavenly city. Like I said, so many people have this idea that heaven will be spiritual. And by that, they don't mean spiritual in the way the Bible means spiritual. Do you know when the Bible talks about spiritual and uses it as an adjective? It never means it as non-corporeal or non-physical. It means it as having to do with the Holy Spirit. When the Bible says something is spiritual, it means it's pertaining to the Holy Spirit, not that it's non-physical. But most Christians are confused about this, probably because of the influence of Greek philosophy, which has had a lot of inroads into Christian thinking over the years. And so we lose this kind of vision of the Christian future, which is very physical. 
There's all kinds of stuff in this city. And it's stuff that comes from all over the place. Some of these places listed, if you were in Israel when this vision was given, you would know, oh yeah, that's to the north, that's to the south, that's to the east, that's to the west. In other words, Isaiah is saying from the four corners of the earth, the kings of the earth are going to bring the very richest productions of their culture. Lebanon is going to bring the, 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 the fruit of the forest because the forests of Lebanon were legendary. Doesn't mean they weren't real. I mean that they were famous for just the size and the character of these trees. And on and on and on. The ships of Tarshish are famous. And so all of these things, the very best that the world has to offer, are all going to come into the heavenly city. You remember, maybe you don't, but at the end of the book of Revelation, the vision we get is the heavenly city comes down. Now, it's interesting, there's quite a contrast, because mankind had tried to build the Tower of Babel to reach God, but it didn't work. But what God does is he comes down, and his city comes down. In other words, heaven is here. It's not up in the cloud somewhere. There is what we call the intermediary state, where your soul and your body are separated. But that's temporary, and it's never considered the ultimate good thing that we hope for as Christians. We hope for a full-bodied experience, a fully physical future for all eternity. And that's the vision we have here. There's stuff in the heavenly city, good stuff. It shouldn't be surprising to us because God created a physical world and he looked at it and said, this is very good. And even when that world had rebelled against him, he didn't wipe it out and say, well, I'll try again, except this time I'll create people that don't have appetites and then maybe they won't eat the wrong stuff. No, he remains committed to physicality. So much so that he takes on human flesh and dwells among his people, and dies a physical death, and is raised in a glorified physical body. He even eats after he's been resurrected from the dead. And right now, the Lord Jesus has a physical body. Right? That's our future. And this is not a left turn in the the history of the story of God's people. He's been committed to physicalness ever since he created. What's also interesting and surprising here is that this city here, in spite of our sin, is a place of peace and beauty. Did you catch those images? This this city and these people will be endowed with splendor. Now, there's actually two different words used for glory in this chapter. I know a lot of you have heard me talk about the word for glory in Hebrew is a word kabod that means weighty. But there's another Hebrew word for glory, and it means beauty. And both of them are used in this chapter. In other words, this heavenly city will be both solid and weighty and significant It will also be beautiful, endowed with splendor. And what that means, and and, and again, this is surprising, because if you've been around Christians, if you've ever been in a church, the idea that God's people would be so weighty and beautiful and full of peace that people would come running to be a part of it is really inconceivable, isn't it? 
But that's the picture we have here. That God is going to do something through his people that is going to make them weighty and significant and beautiful and attractive. And the nations are going to want to be a part of it. They're going to come running to it. God's glory impresses and it attracts. Think about that. It's shocking, I think, because the church that I know is not like this. But God's not finished. He's not finished. And, and in seeing what's coming should help you to understand what you need to work for and pray for and long for now. If you think that the vision of the future is that you finally get away from everybody, well, then that probably is going to give a certain shape and direction to your life now. If you think that what's coming is you'll finally be rid of your earth suit and you won't have to deal with physicality anymore, well, that's going to shape the way you live now. But if you understand that what God is committed to is making you part of a community that is weighty and beautiful then you will weep for the day that it will come. And you will do everything you can to bring it about. You will pray for it. You will live in intentional community and say, brothers and sisters, we can settle for nothing less than this vision because this is God's vision. This is what Jesus died for. And this is what God is committed to bringing. And if you want to be part of God's kingdom, you need to understand what his kingdom is about. And it's not about just getting you into heaven. It's not just about making you feel loved. It's actually about making you into this beautiful, weighty, significant thing that will change the world. That's what God has in store. It's another surprise, though, to a lot of Christians. I wish this wasn't a surprise. But for a lot of Christians, it's surprising that this is a multicultural vision. It's the kings of all the earth who bring their stuff into this city. I like the way Richard Mao, he's got a great book. If you want to explore this further, Richard Mao, M-O-U-W, has a book called When the Kings Come Marching In. It's about Revelation 21 and Isaiah 60. And sort of just helping us understand and unpack these two chapters. So... It's, it's sort of like if you read this whole book, like almost 200-page book, and then you try and preach one message on this passage, it's really frustrating. So I'm going to point you to that book. But he says it this way. Diverse cultural riches will be brought into the heavenly city. That which has been parceled out among the various cultures in human history must now be collected for the glory of the Creator. I like that. What's been parceled out will now be collected in other words, it's not just the best of Western culture that gets brought into the city. Now, there are a lot of Christians that don't like that. I actually literally had a man, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say, who's an ordained minister in my denomination that I'm part of, come up to me one time and tell me that he really truly believes that we'll only sing Bach in heaven. Nothing else. And I said, and, and his reasoning, of course, was, well, Bach is the, the greatest music, and we should only sing the greatest music for all eternity. And I said, well, by that logic, why don't we just sing the best bar that he wrote over and over and over again? Because I'm sure there's some lines that aren't quite as good as this other one. So let's just really sing the best of the best. It's ridiculous, and it's not biblical. But there's a lot of Christians 
from, the, from you know, all through the ages who fall into this idea that there are somehow one pure cultural expression of the gospel and then there are others that are inferior that need to adapt. You see this in the letter to the Galatians where the Galatian believers who are not Jewish are being told by some Jewish false teachers that they need to adopt Jewish cultural practices to be truly pleasing to God. And I will tell you to our shame, in a lot of ways, the church still communicates that kind of stuff. We communicate it by the kind of songs we sing. We communicate it by the kind of buildings we build. We communicate that there are certain things that glorify God and then there are others that don't. And there's a particular tendency of Western culture to think that it's automatically superior to other cultures in this regard. Now that doesn't mean that there's no judgment, as I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Actually, all cultures have to stand to God's judgment. But be careful that we don't miss that God is really excited about bringing people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation into the church. But he doesn't do that by just making them all become Westerners. He brings all of these people into the church with the fruit of their own culture. Okay? This is not just sort of the spirit of the age of multiculturalism. This was God's idea from the beginning. Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing to the nations. God was the God of the earth from the very beginning. So as I put on the outline here, this multicultural vision is not a left turn in the storyline of the Bible. I'll give you one other example. In the day of Pentecost, there are people from all over the place who are in Jerusalem for this festival of first fruits, is what Pentecost is. And the Spirit is poured out on them. The Spirit does not make them all talk alike. It says very specifically in Acts chapter 2 that the people who were around heard these people praising God in their own tongues. In other words, there's people from all these different languages all around and each of them hears their own tongue being spoken. What God is saying is, it is not my intention to make a church that is one homogenous people group who all look alike, think alike, and dress alike. It's never been my purpose And it's not what the church is to be about. There have been times when the church has understood that. There have been many times when the church has failed to understand that. And has made laws and rules that really were about matters of cultural preference. So, this multicultural vision is God's vision and it shouldn't surprise us. Um, One of the things that this means is that we can and should extol the goodness of all creation and the good things about the products of human culture, even culture produced by people who don't worship Jesus. Now that's a strong and challenging idea for a lot of Christians. A lot of people have grown up thinking that if it's Christian, Christian used as an adjective, it's automatically better. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that God is going to bring into the heavenly city the splendor of the kings of the earth. And here in Isaiah 60, you find that these are like cultural products by many people here who are enemies of God's people. Now, again, this shouldn't surprise us if we knew our Bibles better. In Acts chapter 14, Paul talks to people who are not Christians and not Jews. And he tells them that God has put joy in their hearts. And one of the ways he's done that is by giving them rain, and, but also by giving them crops. Crops speaks of cultivation. It's actually where the, the word cultivation comes from and culture comes from. 
In other words, human culture is one of the ways God puts joy into the hearts of people who don't even know him or worship him, whether they recognize it or not. John Calvin, who's often thought to be a narrow-minded, stodgy kind of guy, and maybe he was in some ways, but there's a place in his classic book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he says that it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit to not recognize God's truth wherever it's found. And he says that in the context of talking about Plato and Aristotle. He says that in the context of talking about non-Christian pagan philosophers, that if you don't recognize truth that the Holy Spirit has given them, even though they don't know him, you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that everything they say is right. There's a lot of things they're really wrong about. I actually talked about some of them already in this message, about sort of the idea of disembodiment being a better state. But God's truth comes through all sorts of ways. Why? Because everything that God has made is stamped with meaning. God spoke the creation into being. It says in Psalm 19 that the heavens are declaring his glory. That means they're not just passively sitting there for creation scientists to sort of use to make arguments about God's goodness. No, the creation is actually preaching at us, proclaiming in an active, dynamic way that God is good. Everything he's made is stamped with meaning. And we can either amplify that meaning or we can fight against it. That's the whole dynamic of culture. It's why culture matters. Because it's meaningful. Because it's interacting with meaningful stuff that God has made. But it's also a sort of a pushing and a pulling kind of thing. What this means is, look, I'll give you an example. The Bible says that work is made for you to glorify God. It's stamped with meaning. And yet we often try to make it say something different. When we try to make work say, this is why I matter, or this is how I can provide for myself and not need anybody, then we're fighting against what God has made work to mean. And it will come back to bite you. God has said, I've created sex for you to say to another person, I belong to you and I'm committed to you. And when we use it to say something else, it breaks. So the whole creation is stamped with meaning. And here's the point. Sometimes people who don't worship Jesus actually hear the meaning that creation is stamped with better than Christians do. Uh, you know, some, I think one of the great lies of our world and the spirit of our age is that the goal in life is to be safe. And I think it's especially grievous when people in the church buy into this and think this is the highest goal of their life is to be safe and comfortable. And yet, I don't hear very many Christians challenging it. The people that I think are making some of the most profound pieces of art challenging this idea that safety is the point of life are outside of the church. Some of the people that are making the most powerful works of art and statements about the oppressive, arbitrary sort of standards of beauty that we've embraced as a culture are outside of the church. And we would be fools to not listen and say, maybe they're hearing something built into the creation that we've just not hearing. We've got our fingers in our ears and we're not listening. Okay? So this idea of the heavenly city involving the highest production of the cultures of people that don't even worship God 
is a way for us to think differently about the way we interact with the culture now. We don't just say, well, this is Christian, so it's safe, and this is not, therefore I don't have to listen to it or think about it at all, has nothing to offer me. Don't do that. Not only will you be a fool, but you will be misrepresenting God and the way he thinks about the world. Another surprising thing for some is that while this is a multicultural vision, it's not a pluralistic vision. Look at verse 6. All from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. L-O-R-D, all caps. That's not a generic name for God there. When, when you see all capitals, L-O-R-D, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it means Yahweh is the Hebrew behind that, which is the covenant name of God, which is the personal name of God. So the picture here is not of all the various nations coming in as long as they praise some sort of God or they have some sort of religious view. No, they need to be proclaiming the one true God. The God of all the earth, yes, but the only true God, Yahweh. So it's not a pluralistic vision where to get in, all you have to do is sort of have some vague religiosity. No, coming in requires submitting to the God of Israel. Another thing, the stuff that comes in is made by sinful people. And yet, when you look in Revelation chapter 21, there's a detail in there that's sort of emphasized that's not in Isaiah 60. It says there that there's nothing impure in the city. And so you have this paradox. There are people coming in who are bringing stuff that is made by sinful people. And everything made by human beings after the fall is flawed in some way. While it evidences God's glory, and it's made with his stuff that has meaning, it's still also bears the mark of our fallenness. So how can it be that the fruit of all the nations can come into the heavenly city and there be no impure thing in the city? And I think the only explanation is that God has not given up on his creation and had to settle for just accepting human souls. God's redemptive and transforming work will not be limited to saving merely human souls. It must extend even to the things that have been made cultural things, if this vision of Isaiah 60 is to come to pass. In other words, our God is a God of dogged perseverance. Human beings have sought to fill the world with idolatrous stuff, ways of proclaiming that we don't need God, that this world is ours. But God takes these things and transforms them. Now, take note. God does not welcome just everybody and everything just as they are into the city. There's one very frightening detail in Isaiah 60 that I want to point out to you. It says here, um, well, it's frightening, I guess, depending on where, you, where you're standing. Um, it talks here about the kings being led in procession in verse 11. Now, that's the imagery of kings being bound and cuffed and led in as the spoil of war. In other words, part of this vision here, and this connects to some other verses in Isaiah, that those who have oppressed God's people will have to answer for it. That there's an imagery here that those who have oppressed God's people will have to answer for it. 
Richard Mao has some great stuff to say about this. I don't have time to get into it fully, but I like this quote of his. He says, Kings and queens will bow before the widows and the orphans they've oppressed. White racist politicians will wither under the gaze of black children. This will come at the end of the age. It will be the last of the closing off of sinful history. There will be a reckoning. And the kings of the earth will have to answer. Now whether you buy that interpretation of verse 11 as I do or not, at the very least you have to see here that the kings will be humbled. Notice that they don't get to do what they used to do with this stuff. Kings of the earth are used to using this stuff to support their power and their privilege. But they don't get to use the stuff to bargain for a better seat at the heavenly feast. They bring this stuff and they give it to the Lord. Their treasures, which in this life display their power, are now used for a very different purpose. And that is good for us because we fit in that category of people who use our treasures and our beauty and the things the Lord has given us. We use them for inappropriate purposes all the time. But God is actually going to redeem even that. Well, a couple concluding applications and then I'll pray. How we approach culture as Christians is complicated. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. We're called at places in the Bible to affirm the culture. This is a very culture-affirming kind of passage. Then there are other places where we're told that we need to protest the culture we find ourselves in. How do you do that? Most people will find it easier to either enjoy the culture or protest the culture. But Christians can never just settle into one of those because none, never will that be the only appropriate way to live. And so we have to wrestle. But I brought this passage up in particular because I think people in our day and age tend to be people who have grown up around Christian settings where the culture has been made to be seen as evil or dangerous or both. Trivial, evil, dangerous, all, all those things. And I want us to understand the way God speaks very positively about the creation and the culture of all the world. Um, <clears throat> second, remember God has not given up on his good creation. And even though we ourselves often use it to say something very different than one, what God intended to say, part of the glory of Isaiah 60 here is that God gets the last word. You may be trying to say something very different with your sexuality, <coughs> with your talent, with your intelligence, but God gets the last word. <laughs> Let's just pray.